Hello and welcome to the Boss Podcast. This is episode 108. I am Kirk Bailey and on this week's episode we're going to be talking about selling your company with Quiet Lights, John Hainstock. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Mark Littlewood is joined by John Hainstock from Quiet Light Brokerage. John is an entrepreneur who built and sold businesses before moving across the world of corporate finance and merchant banking and helping entrepreneurs make the most of the thing that they've worked really hard to create. Happy listening. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, now, I know who you are, um, but uh, our dear Dear listeners may not um, have, uh, have have searched you out. So tell me a little bit about uh, your background. Yeah, so my background, um, you know, over the past, let's say, decade or so, I've spent in software as a service, so SaaS world, uh, building and growing um, my own uh, company called ZoomShift. And ZoomShift was, or is, I should say, employee scheduling and time tracking for hourly employees. And during kind of that period of time, we were doing both uh, the SaaS product as well as we ran an agency that was doing product development for some other companies. Um, and we kind of did this teeter-totter thing between both companies until ZoomShift was at a place where it was uh, full-time. And so that's kind of when I look back at kind of the, the history of how I got into software and all that stuff. It was actually seated at a um, incubator accelerator program in the States. Uh, it's called, it was called 94 Labs and which was the predecessor to what is now Generator. And um, right. so we were one of these early um, startups in that cohort. And I joined on with my co-founder back then. Um, ZoomShift was his project and I joined on uh, shortly after that. And so, yeah, that's kind of the, the history of what brought me into software um, and kind of where things are at today. And so, you know, now I'm on at Quiet Light and I'm working with entrepreneurs to help them get the exits that they are hoping for. And it's been a, a fun, fun ride so far. Yeah, well, we love the Quiet Light um, guys. I think they've got a very considered approach and they seem to have a lot of recovering entrepreneurs is that the right expression um in their uh, in their team that's pretty much the whole team right there yeah that's right excellent <laughs> so uh, i think what would be great to talk about today are some of the things because you've built and, and sold a company <clears throat> talk about some of the things that you didn't know going into that uh, whole process about selling your business what are the things that you really um uh, didn't expect to come up that did what are the things that went uh, well um, and really kind of give people some pointers about the sorts of things they should be thinking about or be aware of uh, when they come to think about um selling the company so let's talk just to provide some context let's let's talk a little bit about um zoom shift and you said you came out of an accelerator and uh, you were one of three co-founders is that oh there were actually just two of us three okay. three people total at the organization when we actually exited 
Got you. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, talk us through the first five, six, six years or so. What, um, what, what, as you started, what happened and, and, and how did you grow? Yeah. So, I mean, in my experience, there was a lot of, a lot of mistakes, a lot of learnings. I think probably one of the best things that went well for us was establishing um, some SEO in the early days. We'd worked with an agency um, to help us get set up with on-page optimization and just being pretty early into the game helped us establish some rankings in some of these key keywords that were you know, driving traffic for us. And so yeah. it, it was nice to see ZoomShift could kind of grow organically without too much of a sales effort or anything like that. And so it was growing kind of in the background as we were building our agency at the same time. Um, and by building, it was really just maintaining uh, enough on that side to pay our bills and to continue working on uh, ZoomShift. And yeah. so we went through, you know, multiple iterations of the product. Um, and I think that kind of slowed us down in terms of what we were able to accomplish because we were so product focused we didn't have that balance of kind of focusing more energy on the growth side. And I think we would have uh, been much better off if we would have split time 50, 50 and, you know, spent some time, uh, more time on the growth side, uh, specifically just building out SEO, like more building out more, um, yeah. content for traffic. Um, I think could have made a pretty big difference actually in our overall numbers. Uh, but in any case, yeah, we went through that whole process of trying to figure out, when was the right time to jump and leave the agency? And um, so there was, as I mentioned before, a little bit of teeter-tottering. We weren't really totally sure when we were ready to do that and cut off that other income source. Um, but we eventually did. And I think, you know, through that process, we learned like for us, we weren't very good about removing ourselves from the business. You know, as I mentioned, there were three of us, um, you know, going to the exit and, you know, ideally you're in a position where the business runs without really needing you that much, like, mm -hmm. or the, the work that you're doing is more working on the business versus working in the business. And we never really made that transition. And so I think a lot of founders kind of get stuck into this place where, um, you know, they're, they're building the product and it's hard to hand over the keys to some of those things to somebody else. That was certainly our story. Um, we, we cared probably maybe a little too much about all that stuff and how it was done and, um, you know, had some failures along the way in terms of trying to hire people. And uh, so, yeah, lots of lots of lessons in there and kind of through that process and just being in an interesting category is when we started to get interest from venture capital, interest from, you know, private equity. Um, and some of those conversations were very short. It was just, no, we're not looking to raise money. We're not interested in selling. XYZ um, for XYZ reasons. And we kind of had templates that we just used uh, via email. But we eventually were approached by somebody who we thought could be an interesting partner because they had uh, direct industry experience and they were the uh, growth officer at one of our biggest competitors. And so we felt like if we could exit to anyone and learn from anyone in this situation, it was going to be them. Mm. So, yeah, so there was that piece. And then we were kind of at an inflection point, which I feel like a lot of businesses go through, which is to take the business to the next level. What got you here is not what's going to get you there kind of thing where you realize you're going to have to reinvest into building a team, building up processes, 
um, doing things honestly that we weren't necessarily amazing at, and we'd have to get really good at, like becoming good leaders, managers, um, you know, process-driven uh, folks. And so it was kind of having the self-awareness and the, the, the reaching this inflection point that made us realize, okay, it, it is a good time to take some chips off the table if we can get a good deal uh, mm -hmm. done. And uh, so I feel like people go through this all the time. Honestly, it's it's trying to figure out, do we double down and reinvest everything? Or do we try to, um, you know, just keep as much, you know, take home for ourselves? And it, there, there's kind of this balance. It's really hard to figure out, especially when there's multiple co-founders involved and just trying to keep everybody on the same page and in alignment is very difficult. And so, um, yeah, that, that's kind of the long-winded answer of, of the, the question of what is the history there? I tried to cover some of the things that, the major things that uh, I was thinking about and feeling. Well, I was, I was letting you run because it was interesting, but it uh, also there's, there's so many points that you hit there that I think resonate with um, all sorts of people. I think the, that there's a very common thing for people around consulting versus product companies and how you manage uh, manage your time between those two things lots of people are running great consultancy businesses that uh, are cash generative and have these great ideas for products and really struggle to um to make them happen and and uh, get them work to, to to work for example and then obviously there are things around the um the sale it was what at what point did you um dial back on consulting did you go all in on the on the product at, at a particular point and and if so was there a milestone that you had to hit to to do that that you'd set yourself so yeah it's an interesting thing because it wasn't uh, an exact day or uh, at, least not, at least not one in my memory that I can kind of look back on. It was a slow transition where we kind of just tapered off anything we were saying yes to on the consulting side. And um, my co-founder switched over before I did. And so I was still doing more consulting even a couple of years up to the exit. Um, and that was just extra fuel for me to be able to make that transition. Um, you know, so for the early days of ZoomShift and consulting, we weren't making any money, right? And so we were kind of just draining, uh, at least for me, I was, you know, newly married. Uh, we just had a kid. And so we were just draining wow. savings for a couple of years. And so I was trying to regain uh, or replenish, I should say, kind of that period of time and get to a place of somewhat financial security before making the leap. And so I still did consulting um, for a long period of time because I had a couple of really good clients that I kept. And then everybody else who was kind of more one-off based work, um, I said no to, but uh, my transition was slower and it was definitely gradual. You discussed it with your co-founder and the the other person in the team as a, um, and at the point that you you moved across, everyone was very comfortable and on board because there's often a tension in those situations between the ah oh, look how much my money we're waking on this and we really don't know if this thing's going to work. But you were pretty confident that you had a <clears throat> a match there. 
Yeah, we felt in alignment about that. You know, the goal was for us to get to product. I think it's hard to say no to, well, it's hard to say no in general, but it's hard to say no when, you know, consulting, you kind of know what you're going to get versus when it comes to SaaS, it's, it's complex. Um, uh, there are different levers you can pull and like certain levers make a massive difference as we've like experienced, mm -hmm. but getting those things to line up just right. Like it's not this easy, uh, calculation of, Hey, I put X amount of things in this thing. And it just comes out the other side with that versus consulting, yeah. which is very much like that. And so I think there is a, for us, it was a little bit, it was difficult for me to let that go. Um, because the levers on the, on the side of zoom shift weren't as clear. Like you had to, the iterations and the tests you would do there would take weeks before you yeah. had an understanding of how they were working out. So yeah, it was a difficult thing for me to let go of. And I mean, even to this day, I still do some consulting with those clients that I've been working with for nearly a decade now. Wow. Oh, that's really cool. That's really yeah. cool. So when did you start thinking about selling? Um, you, you mentioned that you're working with uh, uh, one of the people from a competitive organization. Um, was there, what were the drivers? Were you kind of bored doing what you were doing? Were you kind of really excited about it, but saw other things you were getting excited about? Uh, what were the, what were the kind of pushes and pulls there for you? Yeah. So the catalyst there was the conversation that we, or the, the outreach that we had received from a buyer broker from that organization with the, the founder of which um, one of the owners had the competitive experience. And so for us, we weren't really thinking about selling at that point. And actually the first time that we had the conversation, it was a year before we ended up selling to them. And uh, for us, the number just wasn't attractive enough for us to walk away at that point. But yeah. I think underneath all that, underneath the surface, there was kind of this tension of um, constantly asking myself, like, what am I doing with my life? There was a lot of that bubbling up. Um, is this really what I want to be doing? Like, is this going the way that I want it to be going? Um, am I, is this a, a way to do meaningful work? And I think that a lot of those questions just made it difficult for me to, to just stay super motivated uh, during that time period. You know, if you're, if your um, only goal is just to raise ARR or something like that, um, it just starts to feel a little weird. Like you just, you feel a little listless, a little aimless. And I think mm -hmm. that for me, there was a bit a kind of a disconnect between serving the customers well and doing what, just trying to, you know, focus on that and solve solving all the problems versus just, um, you know, increasing MRR. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think for me, there was a little bit of a disconnect there and I had become, uh, a little bit tired too of working on that same thing. Like, I think for me, I realized again, getting back to self-awareness that I'm more of a builder. Like I like that initial startup process. Um, once it gets into more of maintaining and, you know, just um, doing little tests and supporting and stuff like that, I start to lose interest. And we were kind of at this point where you're talking seven, eight years down the road where that's a pretty good stretch of time to, um, even though we were kind of jumping between a couple of things, it's still a long time to give some, any project your attention. 
And uh, so it did feel like a good place to put a bookend at the point that we did decide to sell, but we weren't a hundred percent ready to sell even the, the second time around, like even after that first meeting and we waited another, they waited another year, we still weren't totally ready for it. And I think that it was just, it was like all of these underlying things, a lot of them emotional um, yeah. that were just drivers of that decision. Interesting. We'll talk about the emotions later, if uh, you can bear it. Um, I think it's one of those things that we talk about at Business Software a fair amount. I think um, entrepreneurs often find the process of selling a business and then uh, ultimately exiting it is absolutely not what they had expected at all. Um, but uh, I think there were some things that, that I'd really like to, to talk to you about, about what you what you learned going through the process and I know that there were a few things that you know, you've, you've pretty reflective and, and had sat down and thought about the process and said hmm I wish I'd known x y and z because that would have made my life uh, a lot simpler and do you want to talk about a few of the um the big the big things that made a difference for you yeah I mean so one was one of, the, one of the biggest things was the tax implications. And this is just something we learned. Um, we had luckily set up our company as a C-Corp from the beginning and had been running it for five years and were original shareholders, which meant that we qualified for qualified small business. Um, I can't remember, QSBS is kind of like the name of this, of this yeah. tax code thing. And what it essentially meant for us is that we were able to uh, not have to pay capital gains tax on the you know appreciation of that uh, on the sale, yeah. Um, and so it's essentially saving us like uh, I think it would have been around thirty to forty percent. Um, and so that was huge. And it wasn't it wasn't until we realized that that was a possibility that we really started taking the the exit seriously, yeah. and. So, and, and when you're doing a C-Corp and you're just running your business, it doesn't, it's probably not the best structure because you're getting taxed multiple times. Um, you're getting taxed on the business as well as, you know, personally. However, when it comes to exit, and if you can exit for seven, eight figures, nine figures, it actually does really pay off because um, a lot of the bigger deals will go as stock sales. They will actually do that instead of an asset sale. We were really like not in a position to, um, to push it, but the buyer was like, they were good with it. They, they were interested in learning the process for themselves because they weren't even familiar with it at the time. And so um, they were willing to go through that process with us. And if you're going to go through that, just know that you're going to have a lot of legal associated with it because you're transferring stock to um, another entity and there's the liability that goes along with that versus an asset sale, the liabilities don't transfer. Yeah. And so that's just something to be aware of is just knowing that there will be more legal work. And um, for us, that was a major stressor and it, it definitely cost a ton of money, tens of thousands of dollars. And it was, you know, almost lost us the deal, I would say, but um, just be prepared for that if you're going to go down that route. Uh, that's probably yeah. one of the biggest lessons was like the tax implications of an exit 
Um, and then the value drivers too. I think what's interesting for me now, kind of being at Quiet Light, is really spending a lot of time trying to understand businesses from the investor standpoint and what the value drivers are, what people are looking for. Um, you know, outside of just the growth of the business, the overall health of it, but people looking at things like what is the split of your um, your subscription revenue? How is that diversified in terms of monthly versus annual plans? How, you know, how's it diversified across customers? Um, these are pretty common things that you would think about uh, if you were going to buy something, but as mm. you're running a business, it's not the number one thing you're thinking about. You, you might even be using annual as a way to kind of cash flow, um, you know, just getting more cash flow for reinvesting into marketing, which is something that I had kind of taken on as uh, like, that's what you should do. Um, but yeah. when preparing for an exit, like those things can actually go against you um, because uh, those revenues you haven't actually provided the service for yet. So it's those are in the future. They can also uh, they can also hide churn issues and that, that can turn away investors too. If you have long contracts and uh, they just aren't going to renew, but there's no way for them to uh, know if they're going to renew or not at that point of purchase. So those are some things to... Oh, how things have changed. I mean, this is, I mean, the world of SaaS and SaaS revenue is a, is a very different thing to the, the old world of enterprise software and selling big deals and doing, uh, you know, having ma annual maintenance contracts and things. Um, and, and yeah, the, the, the deification of the monthly payment, I think, is, uh, is, a, is a really big thing now. So um, other circumstances where um, annual revenues are a good thing in your experience with, uh, with businesses if you're selling? Um, I'm not that I've seen so far. <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of, like at, at this point, I don't have a ton of experience um, beyond my own and looking at a, at a handful of other software companies that have sold. So I don't see that, you know, annuals being a benefit on the sales side or, or especially our one-time revenue kind of thing, uh, lifetime deals, those can be mm. um, also difficult. But I mean, really, when you put on the investor hat, it does make a lot of sense why it's less appealing, um, because those are revenues on things, on services you have not yet provided. Those are in the future. And again, yeah, you could be, you could be in a position where a lot of that revenue doesn't actually renew. Um, and when you're in the SaaS game, the the beauty of it and why you get a good multiple usually is because, you know, what it costs to to bring in a customer uh, might be kind of expensive, and you get them for uh, a lower price, like initially, but over mm -hmm. the lifetime they're going to pay you, right? So it's kind of on the idea that it's the recurring nature of it that they're paying you, and so that's what makes it worth it worthwhile. Um, that's why it's like worth discounting on a monthly basis. Um, instead of yeah. like kind of requiring all of that up front. And so again, yeah, I do think it gets down to masking any sort of potential churn issues as well as um, as well as just like the the potential risk for the the future person of having these revenues associated the services that are not yet provided. Um, those are kind of fall in the same bucket though, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. The one How thing I will say on that, oh, sorry, yeah, what I was sure. going to say yeah. is just that 
the number that you use on revenues as a whole makes a difference. So if you do find that annual does make sense with your given business model, and it really does um, over monthly, it's not to say that you should just force monthly. I think it, it, it's a definitely, it's a depends kind of scenario. And so the number that you use as your trailing 12 month or trailing six or three, depending on your growth, to, like the number you use there is ultimately what's multiplied uh, anyways. And so you want that number to be bigger anyways. And so if it makes a lot of sense, given the nature of your product to be in those kinds of um, annual plans, uh, and especially probably mid-market enterprise kind of things, and you can show some stability with those, then really it's what I'm saying is probably more aligned with things that are more self-serve, right? Like, um, and you're trying to push annual plans just to increase cash flow. Yeah. Um, so it might be slightly, it's going to be slightly different per business. This is not just like a total blanket statement. But I think in the the businesses that I've looked at, the one, I mean, in my one anecdotal experience of ZoomShift, that was definitely the case. Uh, and I've heard it on other occasions where it's primarily driven from self-serve and you're not uh, doing yeah. these like annual contracts through, through legal or something. What was the typical uh, monthly customer payment for ZoomShift? It was about $50. Yeah. 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 So, and I can see that, that that then becomes a much more, um, that's a good thing to have as a, as a, uh, a monthly uh, revenue when you generally accrue. If someone's paying $50,000 a month or something, then they probably start to kind of look at it, um, you know, each month and look at, look at you. So uh, yeah, I guess there's some, there's some, um, there are some there are some different uh, types of of organization where that may not be the um the case yep. but yeah i think i think sort of self service generally is a is a is a big thing and and huge number of companies are self service and self service at pretty significant scale and 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 revenue as well i mean the the monthly payments for SaaS companies now um, from a single customer can be really significant. Yep, definitely. When you were when you were selling the company, um, you presumably had a conversation with the founders at some point that went along the lines of, "Oh, well, we've had this interest, and you know, maybe we've been thinking about it, or we haven't, but uh, yeah, we want to we want to do this and pursue it." um is that is that how it worked or were you just kind of drawn into it gently there must have been a tipping point yeah so they had drawn us into the conversation around if there was interest there and we tried to uh, keep our cards pretty close but uh, eventually they get got to a place where they sent us an informal offer yeah. and that that was the point where we kind of had to really make a decision on if we wanted to move forward so we had co multiple conversations up to that point and they were feeling us out. We were feeling them out. And then they gave us that informal offer, which kicked things off um, at a, just a greater intensity for us. Yeah. Um, and was there a point where you changed your thinking, your approach that was, like, okay, we've got this offer. That sounds interesting. We want to pursue this and go through a process because 
selling your company is a process and it can be exhausting. Yeah, we I I think ignorance is bliss in this one. I didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, really. And uh, so I think that for me, that was probably a good thing. Um, just being shielded a little bit from that. Mm. And at the same time, that's extremely um, difficult. It makes you anxious because you don't know what you're getting yourself into. So yeah. Um, there was a lot of research done during that period of time, trying to talk to other people, other founders and, um, other people who had more experience. Um, but it was, it was challenging because we were just focused on like the multiple, like that's all we, that's like the only thing that really mattered to us was kind of like the multiple and how it shook out to, you know, how much we would make. And we weren't really thinking as much about the experience or the fact that the deal could potentially fall through or mm. getting multiple buyers to the table, like the potential levers that we could have actually, you know, used to get a better outcome potentially. So I think that's something that because we had the blinders on, it was just, and we were kind of forced into this position. It wasn't something we were planning for. Um, you know, that those were lessons that like, you just had to learn by going through it. It wasn't something that, uh, you know, like I could, I, you know, looking back on it, like yeah. it was just something we were forced into a bit, you know, by that. I guess there's a, a few things when you're in that situation where you think, okay, you've had an offer, uh, sounds interesting. Um, there is the, do you go off and talk to other people and see if there are other offers out there? There's that. There's that piece. There's the uh, what in that offer are you going to be able to push back on or uh, use to increase the uh, the value that you uh, you get for, for yourself for the for the business. Um, did you did you go to third parties? Did you go to other people to see what their interest might be, or was this this um, a single buyer all the way through? Yeah. So the only other folks that we had talked with at that time were one of our direct competitors and it was a very loose conversation. And so because we weren't able to prepare for this, we didn't have very much time to prepare. Uh, we had an informal offer, which quickly became a letter of intent. It didn't give us a lot of time to shop, shop it around. And mm. like, even back then when I was thinking about it, there was this idea that like, well, we just have to, we have to see this one through. We have to see what happens um, instead of putting, pumping the brakes and trying to figure out how we could potentially lever multiple offers at the same time, potentially run a process. Um, yeah. All of that was foreign to me and, and I had never really thought about it, heard about it or anything. And so um, you know, at the time, yeah, I didn't, we didn't have a lot of other, uh, input. We did talk to a couple advisors, um, but we didn't get a lot of input. It was just more like, you know, it depends, everything, it, de it depends. And so, mm. um, the only way to really know what that experience would have been like is to actually engage with somebody. And we, we weren't ready to do that because we felt like we didn't have enough time, uh, right. to do it. So, and in terms of the kind of conversation you have an offer, um, how did you uh, push the price up? Yeah, so I mean, back then, this is, we, I don't think we did a great job of it. I think we, you know, had the initial, some pushback on it. Um, and maybe we had one or two back and forths, and we kind of felt like we had, 
you know, there wasn't going to be any more movement and we just kind of stopped it at that. And the things that we were really considering were, you know, what's the equity role moving forward because we saw the potential of the business and we didn't want to, you know, sell ourselves short. Um, Mm. You know, one of the things we were afraid of is like, let's say they buy the business and we just see it like, you know, 10 X in the next couple of years. Is that going to, are we going to just feel like terrible about it? Yeah. And so we were trying to put enough equity in the role forward that we wouldn't feel as bad. We'd have, you know, another bite at the apple, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, I think that like, those are the types of things that were attractive to us and trying to make the deal happen is what's the split of cash and equity. Those are the, the two levers that we were thinking about. Mm. So if we rewind again to the beginning and we've got John with the knowledge he's got now, having gone through this process, done it, and now working with an organization that is dealing with founders um, almost on a daily basis or dealing with founders on a daily basis and and selling companies pretty regularly, what, what would be the three things that old John would tell young John? Yeah. So I would run a process, whether, you know, you work with a a broker or not, I would run the process of creating um, a packet of information that you share with uh, potential investors. So if somebody was reaching out to me today, it was the same people. I was saying like, I really appreciate your interest, but we're going to, we're going to run a process around this and actually shop it out to a number of folks at the same time. Um, and then essentially what you can do is at least control, um, the time frame a little bit more and, um, have the potential of competing offers, which is going to get you a better outcome. So I think a lot of it is preparing ahead of time to bring the business to market versus, you know, being just approached and, and kind of thrown into it. So that's what I would probably do is try to control the process a little bit more on, on my end. Um, and then, yeah, try to position the business in a way that again, shows the potential, the, the potential growth to a, an advice or an investor is huge, um, showing and sharing all the details of the things that you've done so far, what's worked, what hasn't worked. So they can have an understanding of if their skill set and their, um, experience is going to actually make a difference. Um, because that they have to feel confident that that's going to happen. Otherwise the deal fall apart during due diligence. Um, the other thing is, is probably just having lawyers that like a legal team that's gone through and sees a lot of these deals, like somebody who actually works in online business a lot. Um, and that would be just building out the team, you know, like in terms of like taking this to the market, what's it going to take, you know, to build out a great packet to um, contact a, a number of investors at the same time, and then to have these conversations, get the conversations going and then push to a offers and then try to get under contract. And so just being aware of the process and actually running it yourself, you know, yeah. or a broker, which is what brokers do. That, that to me would have been very meaningful uh, looking back now. Um, so yeah, those are kind of the main things I would think about for sure. Yeah. It's interesting that lots of people have been in, in similar situations to you and they've chosen to run the process themselves. And it's very, very hard for them to mm-hmm. then turn around and say, no, oh, we probably should have done it 
a different way or used a broker or um feels like you're you're saying that either use a broker or at least be better informed about some of those value drivers and those key things now uh, working with a broker is a shortcut to that um but uh, there are people that uh, will will have kind of picked up that that knowledge as well but uh, it's a understanding I, I see this time and time again i think a lot of sas people make the the mistake of kind of thinking that the coding is the hard part and at every stage from wow i've done this really cool thing to oh why is nobody buying why why isn't our marketing working why isn't our this that and the other working working and you know as they as they kind of gain experience they start to see the value um and i think particularly from that kind of generation of SaaS companies that were founded late late 90s and um you know through to 2010 and and uh, a little after a lot of organizations would say that they didn't need sales teams a lot of stuff was self-service a lot of stuff was done with seo and um you know with with optimizing web pages and things and those rules have changed i think in the market now the whole landscape is much much more competitive it's much harder to to get uh, seen um if you were starting a business now knowing what you were knowing uh, what you knew what would be the main thing that you would do differently I'd probably prepare for exit right from the start. You know, I think that's just something where, you know, exiting your business isn't inevitable, right? Like whether you die or the business dies or you move on, like you will exit the business at some point. And so, yeah. so to have a strategy from the start of what you're hoping to accomplish with the business and, um, you know, kind of setting it up that way from the, from the beginning can let, uh, give you the chance to, outsource some stuff to, you know, try to bring other people in to help you get to that point. Because, you know, the reality is you're going to make the most money um, selling your business or exiting your business uh, out of your, you know, out of the entire time of running it. Like you will make way more money there than at any other point uh, throughout the business, probably more than running the business. It's a lifetime of that because it's a multiple of your, either your earnings or revenue. And, um, yeah. And so I think like thinking ahead like that helps you say, what are the value drivers? And some of those are how easy is this to transfer? How easy is this for, um, you know, like what can we do in terms of operating procedures and having all this stuff pretty much well set for somebody to take over, over without requiring my help. Yeah. Um, so it's operating it like an investment more less than just like something that you've created that's like your baby and um you know you have a lot of your identity wrapped into um i think that's really where i would focus um you know starting from scratch today and even when i'm looking at other investments you know to buy myself like other software companies to buy i'm kind of thinking like what are the operational things i can put into place that will you know help this business grow and thrive without me yeah, yeah you know as well as to be able to exit well you know like this business, whatever business I'm looking at, it's not going to last forever. Maybe it's a five, 10 year uh, run and that's great. Um, 
but planning ahead, kind of working from the end backwards is a useful yeah. exercise. Yeah, I, I think, so people often say this, and I think there are a couple of reasons for it. One, one as you say, everyone is going to exit at some point. Um, although quite often people think that's so far in the future that they don't need to, uh, to worry about it. I think the other element of that is that generally the things that make a business easier or more valuable to sell tend to be things that make a business easier to run mm -hmm. and more profitable and more cash generative in the short term so the same principles the same drivers are at play in both um both pieces and so you know even if you know, and lots of people will create businesses and and aren't thinking about selling them straight away but but i think the discipline of thinking about okay what are the things that you really focus on at different stages is is hugely um hugely valuable yeah and i i would say to that too it's I think having the the long term kind of um, mindset on it does help because when you're reinvesting into things like marketing or hiring or um, you know building out the systems and processes and focusing on those things, those are investments that you're not going to see right away. Those will actually will reduce your cash flow that you take home personally. Yeah. Um, so having a long enough time horizon that it's you know it's not forever. But it's a long enough time horizon that making those investments, you realize you'll re reap the reward on the exit yeah. and to, pl to plan for that, you know? So I think so much of my, uh, some of the things I've, mistakes I've made and probably I still make to this day are, it's like being too short-sighted, like how much cash can I get from this thing right now versus, well, what if we're investing for three years from now? Yeah. You know, how does that change my decisions? And so those are just, I think, good things to you know, good tools to use, good questions to ask yourself regularly as you're trying to build your business. Yeah, I agree. Fantastic. Is there any anything else you want to leave us with? I think we've covered covered a lot of uh, really interesting and and uh, useful ground. Um, you're John at quietlight.com or are you, that's J-O-N um, yep. rather than um, anything else. And quietlights at quietlight.com. Uh, com uh we'll be seeing you in boston i think which is very exciting um back doing in-person um events but uh john really really appreciate your time lots of uh, things to think about there and uh do feel free to reach out to john if you want uh to hear some hear some stories and and get a uh, a sense of uh what you can do to uh to um, think about selling your business. John, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was wonderful. If you'd like to know more about selling your company and want to speak to one of the amazing people at Quiet Light Brokerage, come see them in person at BossConf USA in Boston, Massachusetts on 26th to 28th of September 2022. Tickets are available now from businessofsoftware.org slash USA. And if you want to bring your whole team to the conference, you can save 20% with groups of five or more. Just enter code GROUP20 at checkout. Don't forget, you can catch Quilight and the Boss Team plus some jobs to be done experts on 8th of June online 
as we present our Jobs To Be Done One Day Conference Special. Links are in the show notes to both the online and in-person conferences. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.